0: The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. It's exciting to see all of these uh, shoeboxes up here, though it does feel like a frightening game of Jenga. Uh, They could go very badly for me. Well, my name is, is Pastor Bill, and it's my pleasure to get to be up here today sharing with you As a reminder, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to grab one off the back table. Or if the person that's sitting next to you is not paying attention, maybe you can snag theirs. Let me first say thank you to to Sarah and Tom and Dennis, Gordon, Tracy. Thank you for leading us in singing this morning. Thank you, congregation, for singing. It's good to be together. Well, before we look at God's word, would you uh, please pray with me? Father God, you are good. You are gracious. You are merciful to us. Thank you for your provision of what we need, including this time together. Thank you for these words of scripture that you have orchestrated for us to read and consider on this day. Give us ears to hear this morning. Help me to present your word with humility and gentleness. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? So in 1 Peter chapter 2 and beginning with verse 9, God's word says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles who abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. You may be seated. Now, last week, we spent time talking about verses 9 and 10. And this morning, I want us to focus on verses 11 and 12. I know, I know. Slow down, Bill. We don't want to get through this book too quickly. I hear you. But with that being said, I'd like to, if we can, just back up just a little bit and look at verse 10. It says, just to, to read it again. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter's audience was primarily Gentiles. Not entirely. There were some converted Jews, but primarily they were Gentiles. So Peter is saying, you were not a people. You were not Jews. You were not part of the the set-apart people. But now, now you are God's people. You had not received mercy before, but now you have received mercy. How encouraging those words were to these Gentile believers. This is, however, also encouraging to us today. If you are a Christian, you have received God's mercy. So what does that mean? Why should that matter? According to one theologian, in defining the word mercy... He said, mercy is God's goodness towards those in misery and distress. And if we go back to chapter 1 and verse 3, we see a a key theme to this entire letter where it says, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So does God's mercy that you are a Christian if you are one. It is by God's mercy that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. It is by God's mercy that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Before you were a Christian, you had not received God's mercy. But now, now you have received mercy. So as we look at verses 11 and 12, I want to focus on on two aspects of these verses. Two issues that I think are critical. They are critical to our understanding of these verses. But also I think this is hitting on what is a theme in all of Scripture. I'll even take it a step further. I think these are two issues that are true in the world as a whole. These are not just issues for us in the church. So, what are they? What are these, these two issues? The two issues that we see in these two verses, and we see as a recurring theme in Scripture there's a war against your soul, in verse 11, and the glory of God, in verse 12. To word it another way, these two great issues are how the soul of man might not be destroyed and how the glory of God might not be belittled. You know, one of the reasons that we know we are as we see in our text that we are sojourners and exiles in the world or strangers and foreigners depending on your translation. One reason we know this is that the modern world that we live in it does not see these issues as important. They're not even issues to be considered. We can see it as believers because the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts causing us to see it. But the world around us, they don't see it this way, nor do they care. If the world believed this, we would see this all over social media, all over the news. We would see it in movies and music, and our culture would be screaming this. But instead... If we go online or listen to the media or to politicians, they will tell us that other things are what are most important. We are told that what is most important in life is to shut down or silence those who prevent you from being your true self. We are told that you are what is most important. That your truth is what matters. We are sinful by nature. Our true self is prone towards sin. My truth is all about me. My truth is what makes me most important in any situation. Yet we know scripturally that we are not what is most important. But it is God and his glory. We live in a world that shows by its priorities and values and commitments and standards and Preoccupations and pleasure that it does not regard these two issues as significant. In fact, they're not even on the list. Our modern world is massively preoccupied with the inconsequential. Nobody on the news, celebrities, politicians are talking about these issues. Our culture is not screaming about these issues. And sadly, if we are honest, a lot of people who profess to be Christians are not concerned with them either. But verses 9 through 12 make it clear. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. But we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Because they wage war against our soul. We are to keep our conduct honorable. So when the world speaks evil against us, they will see our good deeds and glorify God. So as we look at our text more closely, Peter sets this up by starting with beloved. Some translations word this as, as dear friends. There is an obvious closeness. Peter is addressing them on a personal level. There's an aspect of of gentleness in this address. He cares about them. So he is saying, beloved, dear friends, I urge you, I plead with you, I implore you, I beg of you. To put it simply, if, if Peter was alive and preaching today, each of us would sense the angst in his appeal, the emotion in his voice, this dear friend, is pleading with them with a love and a seriousness that surely they're going to listen. Beloved, I I urge you as sojourners and exiles, we as humans are, are social beings. We long to fit in. We want to fit in in big and significant ways and sometimes small and insignificant ways. But we still like to fit in. We don't like to be outsiders. We don't like to feel like we are invisible. We don't want to stand out and seem weird. Consider parties. No one wants to come dressed formally to some casual event or casually to some formal event. That is one of the things that can be tough about living in Southern Oregon. You can be invited to an event that's, that's business casual. And there is a wide spectrum as to what that means. Most of us, we just want somebody just to tell us what to wear so we don't have to stand out. All right, this, this may step on some toes, but one thing that I've noticed, women, you tend to worry a great deal about how you're dressed, which is fine, don't get me wrong. But sometimes it's to the point that, ladies, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you walked into a, to an event or to a party, or maybe even to church, and another woman was, was wearing the same outfit as you. Some of you, not all of you, but some of you would be mortified. Depending on the event, you might even consider leaving. Am I right? Some women will admit it. Well, ladies, I want to let you in on a little secret. For most men, if we walked in and saw another guy wearing the same outfit, now we are relieved. That's like validation that we made the right choice. So, hey, I see you. You're looking good. Sorry. Back to our text. So we don't want to stand out too much. In the first sentence of this letter, not this chapter, but the letter as a whole, Peter told his churches that they are exiles and or strangers in this world. Now here in our text this morning, we see this again. Peter is repeating the principle that God's people do not fully belong in this world. We are strangers, foreigners, sojourners, and exiles. Because Jesus redeemed us from a futile life and gave us a new one. Now, we are God's people, his prized possession. Because of this, we necessarily became and ought to remain partially estranged from this world. Depending on your translation, you may see the word alien or foreigner. The term suggests that believers belong elsewhere, somewhere else, somewhere other than here. When Peter calls disciples sojourners and exiles, he means that we were never fully at home in this world. Though another aspect of Peter calling us strangers comes into play when we look at verse 12. When we see a stranger, we can tend to keep a closer eye on them, can't we? We want to know what they are doing. So when we stand out in the world as strangers or out of place, people are, are going to keep a little closer eye on us. So Peter is saying to, to pay attention to how you act so that when they are watching, your behavior glorifies God. This is a striking statement. We wonder how Peter's people can be aliens among the Gentiles given that they are Gentiles and has been fully immersed in the Gentile life and then they came to faith. They trusted in Jesus. They belong to a new, to a new race. They were now set apart just like us. So there is a, a recognition from Peter that we do not fit in this world. What is important to us is not always what's important to the world. This world is not our home. Now later in First Peter, we'll talk about some of the how we live in this world, though it is not our home. But this is that reminder that we just don't fit. But it's also a warning. It's a warning that we're not supposed to fit. And so we have to guard, have our guard up against becoming too comfortable here. Why is this a warning? Because it's a war. There is a war going on. Jesus said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So we, we live here. And as long as we are here, we have work to do. This is not saying that we cannot enjoy life. It's not saying that we cannot enjoy the things of this world. In fact, it is good and right to to enjoy God's blessings. The answer to this issue is not to become a hermit or Amish. So we engage in our culture. We point people to Christ. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. But it is not our home. We guard against making those things too important. We fight to make obedience to God of higher importance than comfort and entertainment. We wage war. Our text says to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. I think too often we as Christians can be tempted to try to look as much like the world as we can. As much as we can get away with, at least. Some of, some of us might be content to look just like the world, just without sin. As we have already seen in this letter, we are called to holiness. We are called to be holy, to live holy lives. Scripture is our guide for this. We should not look to the world to see how we should act. The behavior of of fallen people should never become the standard of right and wrong. A big problem in the church today is that even though we are saved and in Christ, we can still take our marching orders from what is acceptable and expected in the culture. We must remember that we do not belong to the culture. We are exiles. As Paul wrote in Romans Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The way to get a new mind is not by paying attention to culture or social media, but by paying attention to the mind of Christ, so that we begin to think like Jesus. No matter what everyone else does or approves, if Jesus does not approve, then we should not approve of it either. We need to remember who we are. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, citizens of heaven. And our lives are supposed to demonstrate that. As we take our cue, not from the world, but from Jesus himself. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. What is that? Now, if we were to just quickly glance at verse 11 and read Passions of the Flesh, we might be tempted to think that all that is being said here is that Christians are called to behave with respect to sexual manners in a way completely different from how the world behaves. Don't get me wrong, that that is true. In fact, it's something that's also emphasized by the Apostle Paul. But the passions of the flesh that Peter is describing here includes far more. To abstain from passions of the flesh is basically to abstain from the desires of this world in keeping with the one from whom we do receive our marching orders. These fleshly passions which place success over obedience, my comfort above others, They have everything to do with our corrupt nature. Paul described it this way. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Peter says that these fleshly passions or desires or ambitions war against the soul. They do not simply present stumbling blocks to the soul or set up rival interests, but they are at war with the soul. It doesn't say friendly competition or contest or game or challenge. It says war. War is violent. It is ugly. There are casualties in war. If there is a war for our soul, that gives us some indication of the importance War. I mean, do we see it that way? Probably not. Many of us see our Christian faith as just one of the things that defines us. Just one aspect of who we are. It's not something that we fight to guard and protect. We don't wage war against the things that would rob our affections. Now, if you are not a believer... There's not the same war within your soul. You don't care. Before someone becomes a believer, they they do whatever they want oftentimes. They have little issue going in lockstep with the world. Now, we're not going to do this today, but if we were to go back and read all of Galatians 5, we would see that what Paul is describing are sins that we commit with all of our faculties, physical and mental. Therefore, while we resist physical passions, we also wage war against idolatry, discord, rage, selfish ambition, and even sins such as despair. Peter knew his culture was corrupt, but he never let his people blame the culture for their problems. Therefore, we must abstain from sinful desires, whether they be physical or spiritual, Sins that begin in the mind and the body are equally evil, equally troublesome. Peter suggests this by labeling both classes in the same way. Passions of the flesh. And we wage war against all of them because all wound our spirit. Now let's be honest with ourselves for a minute. We are all tempted to pander to certain sinful desires. Presenting certain sins as plausible and easily indulged. And as we saw in Galatians 5, just because we have the desire does not mean that we should indulge it. Benjamin Franklin once wrote that he was a vegetarian refusing all animal flesh for a while in his youth. Then one day he was on a boat. The wind died down. And with nothing else to do, The sailors decided to cast for fish and caught a number of cod. Soon the fish were were frying, and the, and the, the delicious smell coupled with his rising hunger tempted Franklin. Franklin's vegetarian principles and physical desires briefly battled for control of his will. And he noticed something. He noticed that as the fishermen were prepared the fish, they found smaller fish inside the bellies of the sum of the cod. Therefore, Benjamin Franklin reasoned this way. If fish eat one another, why can't people eat fish? Satisfied with this logic, Franklin ate fish. Later adding, so convenient a thing is it to be a reasonable creature since it enables one to find or make a reason for everything one has a mind to do. Franklin lived by this principle in his private life, cleverly finding a reason or excuse for anything that he wanted to do. Sadly, this kind of rationalization is common to mankind, not just to people like Benjamin Franklin. But we aim neither to rationalize self-indulgence nor to readily acquiesce to temptation. We wage war against the flesh because it wages war against us. It is easy to justify our sins. And so often, we look to the, to the world for this justification. The world will tell us that we are justified because, well, we had a tough day. We have a, a tough life. We were treated unfairly. We need to see this as a war. And so we abstain from them. We fight them because they battle against us. The alternative alternative is that we justify them. We protect them. We care for them and give them soil to grow and take root. Since Peter says that the Christian life is like war, we we should be prepared for battle. We should be ready to fight our misdirected physical appetites and to combat bad moods, evil ambitions, and unruly emotions. We must endure in the battle with our desires, lest we grow weary of battling sin and surrender to it. Notice that Peter does not say, hey, try to reduce the times that you give into these fleshly passions. Or, you know, make sure that you you stay in control while while indulging these fleshly passions. Now, Peter is urging us to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Let us stand out in our culture by being people that are not rattled by the world. Because it's not our home. This doesn't mean that we don't care. But maybe at least we're not undone when things don't go our way. Let us stand out in our culture by being the people who are not the Eeyore at work or with our family. Instead, we proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, out of slavery to sin, and into his marvelous light. Interestingly, first Peter two, eleven and twelve are two sentences in English. But in the original, however, they were were one sentence. Verse 12 is a continuation of verse 11. We live well, not merely by those things from which we abstain, but by the host of things that we choose to embrace. What is required of us? the beloved, to live in this world as citizens worthy of all the wonders and relationships belonging to the next? Well, Peter gives us his answer in two simple words. Abstain and keep. As people marked by grace, by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, we must refrain from some things while at the same time giving ourselves to other things. In verse 11, the how-to of gracious Christian living is stated negatively, while in verse 12, we find it expressed positively. Thus, in the end, true and gracious Christian living means that we will become men and women who are known for being people who are honorable. Perhaps the common ground between the two accounts for Peter's belief that the unbelieving world will see your good works and glorify God. You see, implicit in Peter's arguments is that believers and non-believers alike have a shared sense of what is good and honorable and right. So Peter says, abstain. Don't succumb to the contemporary idea that what you think with your mind or say with your mouth or do with your body can be thought or said and done without doing damage to your own soul. Yet there's an equal and opposite danger here, too. That of the proclaiming the gospel without living a life that commends the gospel. As a royal priesthood and a holy nation, we are to display the glory of God and his kingdom on this earth. We have been set apart by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are no longer to pursue our formal, former sinful passions. Instead, we are to reflect the holiness of our Heavenly Father. Remember the words of First Peter one 14 through 14-15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. The purpose of abstaining from the former passions of the flesh and keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable is to provide a living witness to the fallen and pagan world. We see that in our text in verse 12. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The nature of the glory that God receives is unclear, but... We can rest assured that when Jesus is revealed, he will receive glory in both salvation and judgment. Those who have been awaiting his appearing will, re- will rejoice because they persevered in faith, which resulted, as we see in 1 Peter 1, 1.7, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But those who disobeyed the word will receive God's judgment. And he will be glorified as the one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. So our lives complement our message. We display the kingdom in our lives and we declare the kingdom with our words. So as we live our lives together as a church, unbelievers should be able to see our transformed lives, hear our transformation message, and glorify God at the final judgment. So Peter is teaching us not to disengage from the world. Nor to simply become like the world. Instead, the church is to to display and declare the kingdom. His excellencies. His glory. And in this, Peter is likely alluding to Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5. Where it says, You are the salt of the earth. so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus declares that those who have entered the kingdom by faith are to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. As salt in the world, Jesus calls on Christians to slow the decay of the world as a preservative by remaining salty. That is, keeping what Scripture says as true, as light. Christians, as God's people, are to shine in such a way that we provide a witness to the world that may turn unbelievers to the Father through Christ. But perhaps in our day, disengagement is what thoughtful Christians will what will be their greatest temptation. I know that can be a temptation for me. Throughout the history of the church, some Christians have argued that the world is so corrupt that the church should isolate itself from the culture in order to remain pure. Many of us may feel that our own culture has reached such a state of depravity. As a result, we may be tempted to separate ourselves from society. But Peter doesn't permit such an option. Peter's readers lived in a world that was not only unsympathetic to Christianity, but hostile to it. In this context, Peter urges Christians to persevere in faith and in faithful witness. And if they were not allowed to withdraw to the comfort of disengaged separation, neither are we. We cannot isolate ourselves from the world as tempting as it might be at times. We have been chosen as the new covenant people of God to display God's rule on the earth and tell the world of God's marvelous deeds in Christ. So, Peter calls on believers not just to refrain from sinful behavior, but to do deeds, to act in a way of godly and loving excellence that those around them who dwell in darkness will see their light shining and will consider their own sinfulness. And consider their own behavior. We as Christians can tend to balk at this thinking. We have ingrained in us that we are not saved by works, so then go on to think that works are not important. And that is true when we're talking about justification. We are not saved by works, but in sanctification, there are works. The New Testament epistles are filled with this idea of of good works as an expression of our calling, as evidence of our chosenness. Ephesians 2.10 states, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Titus 2.7 says, reads, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity. Titus 2.14 declares that Jesus reminded us, sorry, that Jesus redeemed us who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In Titus 3 8, Paul concludes his charge to Titus by saying, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So scripture teaches that there is a rightful place for good deeds or good works. So what constitutes good works? Thankfully, we don't have to leave this letter to get an idea from Peter. Peter one fifteen says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. All your conduct. 1 Peter 2.15 For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 1 Peter 2.20 But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 1 Peter 3.6 and you are her Sarah's children if you do good. 1 Peter 3:11 says, "Turn away from evil and do good." 1 Peter 3:13 Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? First Peter 4:19, "Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So our good is looking to Jesus. This is a glimpse of what, is on, what honorable conduct looks like. yet the greatest text of all is taken from Matthew 5:16. Here we find the words of Christ that we looked at earlier. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So no, we don't do good deeds as a way to earn our salvation. The work to earn our salvation was already done by Jesus. But we are concerned with good deeds or right conduct as obedience to a holy God. As an aspect of our sanctification. Our growing in faith. Growing more and more like Jesus. We are by our good deeds to be pointing people to Christ. Now we can't do that if we have disengaged from the people that need to hear this. Some of you see what is happening in our country and in our state. And we want to just leave and go somewhere else. But Peter is saying to keep your conduct honorable, so that when, not if, but when, they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. And we can see this happening. We are called evil because of our biblical stance on abortion, for example. Admittedly, the great challenge for us as Christians is to remain in the world without accommodation to the world. So Peter reminds us that our response as sojourners and exiles, as people who do not fit in this world, is to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul and keep your conduct honorable. Our battle is not against the unbelieving people of the world. No, they are our mission field. This war, this battle, is against our own natural sinful desires. And no amount of insulation from the world out there will leave behind our desires that are in here. Our fight is against sin and temptation, worldliness and the devil. And that is a fight that takes place within us, not around us. So we need to ask ourselves, am I actually warring against my own sin as I seek to love the world, those who are still lost in darkness? Or do I actually indulge my sin while looking down on or remaining aloof from the world? This is another reason why I believe Christian community is so important. This battle is so much harder if we are left on our own. So we we need each other. In this war, we need each other for accountability. We need each other for encouragement to keep going, to keep fighting. The rest of 1 Peter will be concerned with showing us how we are to keep our conduct honorable how we are to live in the world without being consumed by it, how we are to display and declare the excellencies of God to a world that is hostile to us because it is hostile to him. In the first century, Christians were called cannibals for eating the Lord's Supper. They were called atheists for not worshiping the pagan gods. They were considered disruptors of society and rebels against the emperor. How are we to respond to such hostilities? We may be tempted to repay evil with evil, but Peter reminds us that we have been called to bless instead. We see this when we look at, at 1 Peter 3.9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary... Bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. So, as temporary residents in this world, we are to bless unbelievers by living honorable, praiseworthy, good lives that testify to the glory and goodness of our God. It will always be easier and simpler to indulge in disengagement. It will always be harder, costlier, and more wonderful to proclaim God's excellencies. But that is why we are here. The reason for the church is to glorify God. We share the gospel and live lives that commend that gospel in order that unbelievers would see that the Lord alone is God and glorify Him on the day of visitation. We proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us. And we live lives that do not contradict what we are saying. Some with whom we share the good news will become true worshipers of Jesus and glorify God on the day for their salvation. Others will continue in their disobedience. But they will have to acknowledge the worthiness of God in his impartial judgment over them. On that day when Christ is revealed... Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's close in prayer. Father God, our desire is to honor you. We want to glorify you in our conduct, in our speech, in our thoughts. Yet we confess that we are also tempted by the world. We are tempted to fear what is happening in the world around us. We are tempted to fear what tomorrow will bring. We are tempted to fear the ridicule of others. We are tempted to want to be like the world and to look like the world. We ask for your strength as we go through each day. Help us to make a priority of renewing our mind day by day by spending time with you in your word and in prayer. Help us to not neglect the gathering together of the saints. Help us to encourage one another and build one another up. Help us to hate what you hate and to love what you love. We also pray that you help us to fight the temptation to disengage from the world, to feel like we have nothing to offer the world, when we lack boldness to share the goodness of the gospel, remind us that it is you who will save, not us. When we are tempted to fear the opinion of others, to fear man more than we fear you, convict us and give us the strength to repent. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can run to your word and be reminded of who you are, that you are merciful, that you are gracious, that you love your children. That you will give us what we need each and every day. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.